The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Uh, tell me if this sounds familiar. Um, Daddy, watch me go down the slide. Uh, mommy, look at the picture I drew. Does that sound familiar to some of you? How many times, I'm just thinking, um, my parents were better parents to me than I am to my uh, kids in that uh, we always had a backyard pool. And um, in my family, we always talk about having a backyard pool, but we never actually got one. But my parents always had one for us. And I can't even imagine how many times my brother and I said to my parents, watch me, watch me jump in, watch me jump in, watch me jump in, watch me jump in over and over and over and over again. And um, I don't think they actually watched. I, I, think they, I think as soon as you left the, the, the side of the pool, they were gone and doing something else. Um, how many, in, you know, parents, summertime is great for this. How many parents here in this room, you would say that in the past seven days, you've heard one of your children even just say that to you, raise your hand. It's just so common, isn't it? Um, we're, we're all looking for approval. And, and the fact is, we're talking about kids doing that. But the fact is that we never grow out of it. We never grow out of the need, no matter how old we are, the need to have other people see what we do and approve of it. We want their attention. We want someone to notice what we are doing, whether it's parents or, or whether it's teachers or bosses or coworkers or friends, or even as it can become so desperate in us, we'd be happy if a stranger noticed us. And gave their, that's awesome what you just did. We're so craved for affirmation for what we do well. And I have to say that it isn't usually a good thing. The need to have human approval is not a good thing. Really, and I'm speaking to those of you who are followers of Christ, you've professed faith in him, you, you're, you're seeking as best you're able to walk with him. Uh, really, for us, it, it, it comes down to this, that we would want God to look at us and approve of what we do. I just want God to be pleased with me. In Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, uh, the passage in front of us today, the Lord lays out exactly what he's looking for in us. What it takes, wouldn't you want to know this? What it takes to get God's approval. And he says in the passage, this is the one to whom I will look. And that word look is very important. From the Hebrew word nabat, it says a careful, sustained, and favorable contemplation. It's not just a glance, but it's the gaze of God upon us with approval and with affirmation. I'm looking at you, and when I'm looking at you, I like what I see. And he specifically lays it out for us in the text here. Uh, here's what you need to do if you love me. Here's who you need to be to get my approval. So let's read the two verses together and then I'll pray and we'll begin to work through them. 
Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Um, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Father, uh, we're praying uh, right now in Jesus' name that you would use this time in your word, which really is a feeble human effort to proclaim eternal truths. God, that you would use it to encourage those who are um, faint-hearted today. God, teach all of us we're still very ignorant about the things of God in your kingdom. Challenge us in our rebellions, both great and small. And Father, save those in the room who as yet are not following you. God, only you can accomplish these things. And again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You agree with that prayer? All right. Uh, God looks at you with approval when uh, you, let's start here, acknowledge that he is awesome beyond awesome. Awesome beyond awesome. Why did I need to say it that way? Well, because, in fact, let's vote on something right now. How many, how many people would just agree, you're raising your hand to agree, that the word awesome is often applied to things that are not awesome? Okay, would you agree? And so, to just use the word on its own, I think we could understand. But, but I think to catch our attention, just to say that, that, that whatever you might say is awesome, God is well beyond that. He is awesome beyond awesome. And the passage starts, of course, the Lord is speaking here very clear, very direct, very uncomplicated. Thus says the Lord. Now, in very simple terms, if you want the approval of God, you hear, thus says the Lord, to get the Lord's approval for your life, for him to be pleasing with you. When you hear the thus says the Lord, anything that's contained in this book, there ought to be a bit of a sitting up and, and, and inclining my ear and casting out anything else I might be thinking of. I need to hear from the Lord right now. He has something to say to me. He starts by telling us who he is. The credentials of the one who's going to give us the approval that we really seek. He says in the first part of verse 1, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Now I think we have no capacity to understand this. This is one metaphor among many metaphors used in the scriptures to explain who exactly God is. And really, just to use kind of kid language, just how big God is. God's big. I mean, he's so big. And the, the description here is, is that heaven, heaven, the heavens, the universe, the vastness of the universe... He's sitting on it. He's sitting on the universe. I mean, our minds are blown immediately at the vastness. As soon as we start to hear things about how long it takes a spaceship to get to Pluto, 
How many years ago did they launch that thing to get out there and take a few pictures? And, 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 and it took so long just to get to Pluto, and we're such a microscopic part of the entire universe. And God's sitting on it. That's his throne. And we think we're all such a big thing here on planet Earth. We think we got it all going on and we're the center of everything. We're the footstool. God has, I want you to get the mental picture. Nobody's more comfortable when their feet are up on a footstool, correct? That is the very picture. When you put your feet up, that's the picture of comfort and peace and relaxation. And I've got it all going on in my life. My feet are up on the footstool. But the footstool isn't really anything on its own. And and here's God. He's sitting on the universe and he's got his feet up on us. It's just how big he is. And it needs to start there. Because whoever else is in your lineup of people who you think you need to get approval of, next to God, it's pretty pathetic. I mean, God beats that. He's sitting on the universe. He has his feet up on the earth. In fact, his feet are on the heads of the people that you're trying to get approval from. It's, it's, it's so crazy. That we would seek to get the approval of anyone other than the Lord. The Apostle Paul wrestled all of this down, by the way, saying in Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Rhetorical question. The answer is, I'm seeking the approval of God. Or am I trying to please man? No, I am not. I'm not trying to please men. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. And what Paul is saying is it is wholly incompatible for us to claim to follow Jesus Christ and also to try and please people. Completely incompatible, those two things. You have to have it in you to please God first and foremost to gain his approval. Being a people pleaser is a problem. Essentially because, ready for this, you're trying to please another sinner. You're trying to please someone who doesn't have and and, and almost entirely cannot have pure motives about it. Who isn't in some respect self-seeking. You're trying to please people around you. You're going to miss the mark. We want to really straighten this out and make sure we've got it. God is awesome beyond awesome. God is awesome, and you are not. I'm saying this now personally in my life. God is awesome, and, and none of you are awesome. I'm so glad I came to church today. The pastor told me I'm not awesome. I'm like the anti-Joel Osteen up here, right? God is awesome and you are not by comparison. And so I want to seek his approval and not yours. I mean, you could say that to one another. That's the point. I'm I'm just trying to say it to you by way of example. That's something I wrestle with. You tell me there's a pastor in the world that doesn't struggle with people pleasing. Every week he's got to get up in front of people and, and, and try and bring something. He wants them all to come back next week. Wants them all to join the church and be involved. He wants them all to give their offerings. And so pastors struggle with this huge. I'm telling it by way of 
of, of personal testimony, but you can all use this with anybody in your life. God is awesome and you are not, and I want to please him rather than you. Use that in your marriage. I'm serious. Don't elevate your spouse to a level they don't belong at. It doesn't sound very romantic. I get it. It might go against something that you might intuitive think. But for me to go over to Cheryl and say, honey, you are not awesome. (laughs) She's a lot of things. She's a lot of really great things. She doesn't occupy the place of God in my life. God is awesome and you are not. And I want to please him rather than you. That's where we need to go with this. That's the place of of blessing and fulfillment. It's such a blessing to us. The things that God wants to pour out if we would only get this. And really what we're talking about when God says that, that the heavens are his throne and the earth is his footstool. Is we're really talking about the omnipresence of God. That God is everywhere. And in fact that's not even the best way to say it. Maybe that's what you've always heard. That, that, that omnipresence means God is everywhere. But it's, it's not so much that he's everywhere as much as that everything is before him. Everything that that is, everything that exists is before the Lord. The problem with God is everywhere is it can slip into pantheism that that God is in everything or that everything is God. That's kind of pantheism. That God's in the chair and God's in the building and God's in rocks and trees and all of that. It's it's not a healthy place to go. And, And I think in some respects that limits the size of God as well. And we have a big God, bigger than we could possibly imagine. It is that everything he created is actually before him. He's sitting on and his feet are up on everything he created. God is outside of all of those things. Everything is before him. He's, and here's why that's so great. How, this is how this is so great and so terrible. You see, if, if you're in a place with the Lord where you really do want to please him, but, but it's a, a difficult time for you and you're really facing it right now, there's no valley so dark that he's not there. There's no place you can go that you can't call out to him and he isn't there. There's nothing that you can go through that he doesn't understand and that he isn't immediately available to you. And we get comforted by the fact that God is awesome beyond awesome and that he is, uh, he, he is omnipresent, that everything is before him because there's no place where we go. That when we want to seek his approval or we need his presence or we need his intervention or his power is necessary. That we can't call on him and he's there. All things are before him. And that's the great part. It's so comforting but but also sobering and even terrifying. In the sense that if you're in rebellion against him. If you're choosing sin over holy living. If you're running from him or resisting him in any way, if you're trying to hide yourself from him, by the way, Sunday morning at church isn't a great place to go, if that's you. If you're trying to find approval in something other than him, just understand the utter futility of that, but beyond that, understand that he sees all of that. He sees it all. He knows where you are Physically, geographically, he knows where you are at all times. 
He doesn't need find my phone and you have to have your iPhone with you for that to work. He doesn't need that. He knows where you are. He knows where you are mentally in your thought life. He knows what you're thinking right now. He, he knows what you're thinking every moment of the day. He's got that. He knows where you are emotionally. Cold, rigid, not letting anything show or, or just it all falling out all the time and I can't control. He knows that. And no matter what other people in your life might think about where you're at spiritually, he knows, he knows exactly where you are spiritually. Can't fool him. He knows exactly where you are in every way. And if you're hiding from God, you should never feel safe. And if you're looking for God, you should never feel alone. And that's why you should look for his approval alone. He's awesome beyond awesome in every way. Heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. And then, and then this, admit, admit that you fall so ridiculously short of that. I mean, that's the one side of it. I mean, how awesome God is. But, but the other side of it is we, we're like the complete opposite of that. We fall so ridiculously short of his awesomeness. Everyone around you, again, that you might be seeking the approval of, they all fall short of it. He says to them, halfway through for verse 1 now, what is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? What's he talking about there? Well, this is Isaiah the prophet, and he's speaking to the people at a certain time in the history of Israel. And they were actually at this moment uh, kind of working towards the rebuilding of the temple, or at least they were looking at that at a future time. He was talking about the temple in terms of it being the place where his presence is. He needed them to know that no building could contain him. They kind of missed that a little bit. The Jewish people had under the rule of Solomon around 900 BC built this glorious uh, temple. They did what they were commanded to do to build a dwelling place for God, a glorious temple. Now that building was destroyed uh, around 586 BC. People went off into exile in Babylon. They came back and were charged again with rebuilding the temple, the meeting place, the dwelling place of their God. And God, again, wanted them to understand something about himself, something about themselves. And he's trying to give them some perspective on all of this. The problem was not the temple, but their distortion of who they believed God to be. What God intended for the temple. This place of bricks and mortar would be symbolic, symbolic of his presence with the people. His glory would reside in some measure in the temple. But the greatness of God, as we've just described, could not possibly be contained inside the temple. Not in one small building made by human hands. God was simply giving them a visual place, a certain place that they could anchor to, that could be the meeting place, a place of relationship between them and their God, a rallying point. And God goes on to give more of his rationale for not being able to live in such a building, not, 
not only was he too big to be contained in such a building, but the, the building materials themselves were wholly inadequate to contain who God is. Halfway through, or at the beginning of verse 2, he says, All these things my hand has made, all these things that you're going to use to build the temple, I made all of those things. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord. And God is saying, you went ahead and you made the bricks. But I made all the raw material that went into the bricks. You couldn't do that. God said, you cut and assembled the wooden beams that form the superstructure for the building. But I need you to know, I made the tree. You can't make the tree. You crafted the implements, the inlays on the wall. But I actually made the precious metals that you put into those. God said you displayed great skill and craftsmanship and artistic talent. You demonstrated great intellect in the engineering of the building. But I made you. God challenges any sense that they may be growing in them to feel self-fulfilled or, or to seek the approval of others. What a great engineer you are. What a great artist you are. Look at the things that you've made. Look at the building that you built. God's giving them some perspective on all of that. So they wouldn't be caught up in people-pleasing and seeking the approval of others. And the reality is, even when we get accolades, even when praise comes our way, even when the approval of man does come and people are pleased with us, couldn't we all just be honest enough to say that all of these things came from the Lord? That, 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 that even life itself, that the breath that we breathe and then any capabilities we have, all the health that we have to be able to carry on the things that we do, all these things are from the Lord. That all of this is a blessing. We can't take credit for a single thing that we do. It's all of the Lord. It's all from the Lord. It's all a blessing from Him. And He deserves the glory and the credit for all of it. Amen? It's all Him. And He just wants to bring us to a place of honesty and vulnerability about all of this. Because this is our greatest need. To acknowledge that our best efforts are not adequate in anything. And that we always fall short. The truth is that any approval we get is because of Jesus and because of what he did for us. And the father said of him, and this is the basis for any approval we would get. The father said of him, Matthew three seventeen, This is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. He should get the glory. Now, the context of this passage in Isaiah 66 is the building of the temple. And in essence, what God is doing is, is he's making us fit to be the temple of God. That if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've committed your life to him, then you are the dwelling place of the most high God. That you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Very personally, one-on-one, speaking to an individual believer, you are the dwelling place of God. And you need to be fit for that. You don't have all of God in you. You're part of what He's doing. But this is the dwelling place of God. This is the meeting place with Him. God lives in you, not a temple made with human hands, but one made with, by God Himself. And then beyond that, God expands it out. And Paul speaks in a different part of the same letter. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, Do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you, the church? Living, breathing entity together collectively, the, the dwelling place of God, the temple of God, the church of the living God. That's why I'm so fussy on, um, it's not welcome to harvest, it's welcome harvest. It's not, not, let's go to church, let's go be with the church. Church is not a place, it's not a building, it's a people. It's us. The dwelling place of our God, all of this is for Him and by Him and so if I'm supposed to worship him as he would have me worship him, if I'm, a, if I'm going to seek his approval as he would have me do that, then I have to do it in the way he dictates, in the place that he prescribes with the heart that he requires. And he tells us in the rest of the passage what that kind of receptive to the presence of God, what that looks like. So let's just kind of start from the top again and work down, and we'll work through this last part. God looks at you with approval. When you acknowledge that he is awesome beyond awesome and admit that you fall, um, you fail so ridiculous, you fall so ridiculously short of that. Notice now by getting low. This is how we begin to get the approval of God. Now we need to get low. Here's that phrase we looked at off the top. Verse two, halfway through. But this is the one to whom I will look. That sustained gaze with approval on it. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is, what's the word? Are you too humble to say it? This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble. Have I gotten to the place where I admit that I have not in any way by my own strength gained God's favor? I am poor. I am bankrupt. I have nothing whatsoever to offer him. We see humility's opposite in pride, of course. Pride assaults me daily, and it plays out in how I protect my own dignity. And all of that is because I want to please people around. I want them to like me. I protect my dignity. I just want people to know this about me. I need them to know this because I have this insatiable need for people to like me. It, it, pray, it plays out in how I soften the edges of sin in my life. It isn't that bad. Everybody does it. Those are statements of someone who is prideful, not someone who's humble before the Lord, not someone who's willing to admit that they fall so short of the mark. I excuse my actions on the basis of circumstances. Well, if that had happened to you, you would have done the same thing I did. 
The circumstances are so hard right now. You don't know what my life is like. It's pride. It all scorns the approval of God because it means I'm still trying to look good in the eyes of others. I feel like I need to vindicate myself rather than allowing God to do that. Pride is, in its essence, contending with God. It's the root of every other sin in our lives. And Proverbs 3.34 just captures the moment toward the scorners. If you're scorning God, towards the scorners, God is scornful. But to the humble, he gives us exactly what we're looking for. He gives us favor, approval. We're pleasing to him. So get low. Humble yourselves. Get your perspective right on who you are and who he is. And then this, uh, by admitting your sin, this is a natural next step. And they're tied together so closely. Um, Continue on in verse 2. He just talks about being contrite in spirit. A contrite in spirit, by the way, is feeling... Contrite is not a word we use very often, correct? I think the last time I used the word contrite was like nine years ago when I preached this passage. Um, It means feeling regret and sorrow for one's sins or offenses. It is to be penitent. The Hebrew word here, nakah, carries the idea of of beating and, and being wounded and even defeated. I'm, I'm, I'm broken over my sin. I'm, I'm, I'm torn apart by it. it. It disgusts me. And the challenge any of us would have with, with besetting sin in our lives, sin that we just can't quite shake, is that maybe perhaps we're not as disgusted by it as we ought to be. We're not as broken over it as we ought to be. This is really, when we admit our sin, it's purity of heart. This, this really defines what a pure heart is like. Not that perfection has been achieved, because none of us are getting perfection on this side of eternity. But that sin is called out for, for what it is. I've used the word once already as we've worked through this discussion, but really it's just being honest with ourselves, isn't it? I just want to be honest with myself about all of this. And I've just found it so helpful at times to, not that I want to be self-deprecating or I, I don't want to beat myself over all of this. And there's definitely a turn that comes when we start to discuss the grace and mercy of God in our lives and Christ's sufficiency for us and all of that. But it can be so good for any of us as Christ followers to get back to the beginning, go back to the very start, the very first thing you have to admit before, before you become a follower of Christ is that, that you don't have it in you to be saved, that you're a sinner separated from God. That's the starting point. And it's so helpful for us sometimes to go back to that starting point. And so uh, this summer I've just decided again, I know many of you will know about this book, uh, The Valley of Vision. It's um, a collection of Puritan. These were written in the 1600s. A Puritan uh, prayers and devotions. And, um, and I just know this summer I'm going back to this. As I start my break, I'm going to start using this every day to focus again my thoughts and my prayers. It's going to help me. It's not all about this, but there's a whole section uh, simply on the sinfulness of humanity. 
Let me read this one for you. This is a prayer. Um, Oh God, may your spirit speak in me that I may speak to you. I have no merit. Let the merit of Jesus stand for me. I'm undeserving, but I look to your tender mercy. I am full of infirmities, wants, and sin. You are full of grace. I confess my sin, my frequent sin, my willful sin. All my powers of body and soul are defiled. A fountain of pollution is deep within my nature. There are chambers of foul images within my being. I have gone from one disgusting room to another. Walked in a no man's land of dangerous imaginations. Pried into the secrets of my fallen nature. I am utterly ashamed that I am what I am in myself. I have no green shoot in me nor fruit but thorns and thistles. I'm a fading leaf that the wind drives away. I live bare and barren as a winter tree, unprofitable, fit to be cut down and burned. Lord, do you have mercy on me? You've struck a heavy blow at my pride, at the false god of self. I lie in pieces before you. But you have given me another master and Lord, your son, Jesus. And now my heart is turned toward holiness. My life speeds as an arrow from a bow toward complete obedience to you. Help me in all my doings to put down sin into humble pride. Save me from the love of the world and the pride of life, from everything that is natural to fallen man, and let Christ's nature be seen in me today. Grant me grace to bear your will without complaint and delight to be not only chiseled, squared, or fashioned, but separated from the old rock where I have been embedded so long and lifted from the quarry to the upper air where I may be built in Christ forever. See, when we grapple constantly with the holiness of God versus the sinfulness of our hearts, that's the place we should be, a place of brokenness. No one ever gets over this. Again, not on this side of eternity. We should never get over the thought that we are forgiven, that Christ's blood was sufficient for us, that that He alone has cleansed us. Someone may ask the question, actually, when can I get over this? It sounds so depressing. How many Sundays should I come to church broken, humble, How many Sundays are there? 52? How many days should I wake up and open the word of God to pray and seek the Lord? How many days should I come to that broken? How many days are there? It's all of them. This is the starting point, the reminder we all need. We get God's approval by getting low, by admitting our sin, and and then see this, by respectfully agreeing with him. Notice verse 62. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You tremble at the word of God. I get up really early on Sunday mornings. 
to go over the message, to pray, and to worship. And um, many, many mornings, uh, there are tears that will come out of my eyes as I'm readying myself for this. The tears that have stained my journal, tears that have stained my Bible. But this morning, as I was approaching my time in the Word, I just remembered that it's been a long time since that happened. I'm broken by that. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. We should tremble at the reading of it, at the study of it, at the meditation of it, at the hearing it taught and preached. Can't spend enough time in it can't be serious enough about it. You should tremble at the word of God. I think you've heard of the Quakers before, the Society of Friends. They were founded in the 1600s by a man named George Fox. He was considered a heretic in his day, and while the Quakers do indeed have some doctrines that would be different than ours in some ways, I'm not sure we would ever put them in the category of heretic, but at the time, in the 1600s, there was a uniformed idea in England about religion, and it was codified in law, and anyone who deviated from that was susceptible to imprisonment. And George Fox found himself in prison for his beliefs. And the term Quaker, in fact, was not the name that they took for themselves But it was first used in 1650 when George Fox was brought before a magistrate, a justice, on a charge of blasphemy. And according to Fox in his journals, the justice called him, notice, uh, quote, called us Quakers because we bid them, we bid the people to tremble at the word of God. Presumably built off of this verse. In fact, even in their worship, though, they were known to physically tremble at the word of God to be taken to what we would even look at and just say are fits. They defended the quaking before the word of God as a biblical phenomenon, whether that's true or not or legit. I don't really know and I wouldn't comment on. But what I do know is that to tremble at the word of God, whether physical or not, communicates a serious response to what God is saying. The word of God cannot be taken lightly. Again, it must be read and studied and preached and taught. And it must be obeyed. I long to please him by living out his word. Living it out with great zeal. Paul wrote to his apprentice, Timothy, he said this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of God. Do you tremble at his word? Do you rightly handle the word of God, the word of truth? I hope you see in all of that that everything we do, 
the doing part of this message is the getting low, admitting that we are sinners and, and, and um, trembling at the word of God. These are really just things. They're, they're not things that we work towards to get salvation from God. Salvation is from the Lord. It's the work of Jesus Christ that has gained that for us. But these things are really what positions us to receive and benefit from what Jesus did for us. We're not earning anything. We're responding to the work of Jesus Christ. And in fact, what we're going to do to kind of close off this message and our time in worship is we're going to take the Lord's table together and we're going to remember everything that Jesus did for us. And we're going to come to the table humbly. I couldn't do this for myself. The shedding of my blood would not be sufficient. The giving of my body would not earn God's favor. So we're going to call them humbly. We're going to admit that we're sinners, that the blood was necessary to cleanse us of our sins, and we're going to tremble at the word of God. Uh, God's word has commanded us to observe this table, and um, so we're going to do that uh, together. And I thought it would be helpful for us to watch the screen, and uh, the team is going to play uh, for us. And um, you're going to watch the screen for a few minutes, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray, to meditate on the Word of God, to tremble at His Word with some verses we're going to put up on the screen. This is just a personal time for you in quietness to reflect on where you're at with the Lord, and then I'll come back and lead us through at the table.
Father, as we come now to the table that you established for us to remember. And to give thanks, we ask, my God, for your presence and your power to be evident in this room. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you, God, that his place is now at the right hand of the throne on high. God, thank you for the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the love that you poured out on us. God, thank you for looking on us with favor and approving of us for the sake and because of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray these things. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at harvestberry.ca. And remember, you are loved.